Coming up on What Women Want to Know. The greatest number of vibrators are actually purchased by women over the age of 40. In the perimenopausal phase, women actually hit their sexual peak and they have better orgasms because women now suddenly are discovering pleasure. I'm your host, Dr. Adana, and this is What Women Want to Know. The show where we navigate the complex, fascinating, and sometimes intimidating wealth of women's health and well-being. Here, we create a safe, judgment-free space where no topics are off-limits. We confront our fears, we embrace our vulnerabilities, and we find humour in the unexpected. Welcome to What Women Want to Know. Right, before we get into today's episode, I wanted to invite you to join our growing community. A huge thank you to all of you that have been here supporting this podcast since the first episode. If you've just stumbled across us, please join our community. If you're watching on YouTube, make sure to subscribe and hit the notification button so that you know when a new episode is live, which is every Sunday at 6 p.m. GMT. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify, please give us a thumbs up, give us a follow, give us a review, leave your comments. All of your engagement really, really help for other women to join this conversation. On the show today, we're shedding light on a pivotal yet often misunderstood phase in a woman's life. Menopause. Menopause? It's menopause. Women's risk for heart disease increases significantly at menopause. In a society where discussions about women's health can be clouded by misinformation and silence, this conversation aims to illuminate this natural life transition, exploring its complexities and impacts on women's physical and emotional well-being. We delve into key areas such as the genital urinary symptoms of menopause and its implications striving to empower women with accurate, comprehensive knowledge. Our goal is to foster an open, stigma-free dialogue that not only educates, but also supports women navigating this significant stage of life. Joining us in this enlightening conversation is Dr. Nigat Arif, a distinguished general practitioner specializing in women's health, menopause, and family planning. With over 16 years of experience in the NHS and a dynamic presence in the media as a resident doctor on BBC Breakfast and ITV's This Morning, Dr. Arif brings a wealth of knowledge and insight. Her role as an ambassador for well-being of women underscores her commitment to advancing women's health. She has been a recipient of many prestigious awards and recognition and is the author of the book, The Knowledge, your guide to female health from menstruation to the menopause. Dr. Arif is a formidable advocate for women's health, dedicated to enlightening and guiding women through the complexities of menopause, including its unique impacts in ethnic minority communities. So join us as we delve into this universally relevant conversation with Dr. Nigat Arif. What women want to know. It's great to have you on the show today, Dr. Arif. Oh, thank you so much for having me. We're going to dive right into the conversation and we will start with understanding menopause. So let's just start from the very basic. What is the average age that women typically 
begin experiencing menopause? We've got to think of menopause as an umbrella term that women go through in regards to this natural biological journey. So we start actually before that, we start at puberty, which is our first biological journey where we transition. And from puberty, we go into our fertility years. So that's the next transition. The average age of the later transition, which happens after our fertility years, is first known as perimenopause. That's when you are having menopausal symptoms as well as periods. Then menopause is defined as one year without a period. Postmenopause is one year and one day without a period. So that's the normal biological journey that a woman goes through, which is under the umbrella term of when it starts at perimenopause, menopause and postmenopause, as we say, the menopause, which is this sort of biological transition. However, under menopause, we have other subsections as well. We also have primary ovarian sufficiency. One in a hundred women below the age of 40 will go through an earlier menopause. The youngest I've been looking after is 15 years old. And then we also have, say, surgical menopause. So women who at any age could have had their ovaries and their womb removed. So we've actually pushed them surgically into the menopause as well. And then finally, you can get chemical menopause. There are certain treatments, certain chemotherapy drugs that you can take, which actually impact on the function of your ovaries. They stop your ovaries from working. And therefore, chemically, we put you into the menopause as well. So we've got to almost think of it not as what age does it start because it can happen at any age depending on what subheading it is but we've got to understand the symptoms associated with the menopause. Yeah that's actually the next question so what are those symptoms? I always say to my patients look we have two things that are happening to us. One is is that we do have an aging skeleton so that is going to be with us for the rest of our life. Secondly as our female body starts to transition, our ovaries will make two hormones in less quantity. One is estrogen and progesterone. There is a third hormone, testosterone, but we can come back to that later. But as estrogen decreases, it impacts every single receptor all over our body. We have estrogen receptors everywhere from our head right down to our pinky toe. So we start mostly understanding firstly, what used to be the the misnomer was that, well, everybody gets hot flushes and night sweats, don't they? Well, actually we do know that some women don't. In some studies, we know that it's as little 10% women don't complain of hot flushes and night sweats to some people saying, well, likely 70% of women don't complain of hot flushes or night sweats in my clinics. So we first define them as, say, vasomotor symptoms. So that's hot flushes, night sweats, irritability. You can feel hot consistently. You can even feel cold as well. So your temperature, your body's ability to regulate its temperature. Then we also get psychological symptoms, which actually in my work, I would say 99% or 98% of women have psychological symptoms. So that could be sort of irritability, anger, loss of confidence, loss of joy, loss of self, lack of sleep. So insomnia can happen as well. Then as you come down, we also notice that there are cultural differences. So you can get a burning sensation in your mouth, tinnitus, and Turkish women complain of a burning sensation within their mouth. You can also get palpitations as well, gut-related symptoms, so bloating, irritable bowel type symptoms. You can also get aches and pains. If you look at 
South Asian women, they will complain a lot of aches and pains. They'll always come and say to me, Dr. Nagat, I've got head to toe pain. And that's, I realized is actually one of their menopausal symptoms. I'm curious, what about black women? What's the most common symptoms? We have a similar picture with black women as well. So if you look at ethnic minorities, the distribution of symptoms depends on what symptoms that they feel are more important to talk about or bother the doctor with because the doctor is so precious. So I find that in my culture, if I say to women, Pakistani women, do you get hot flushes? They'll say, stand in the Pakistan heat, you'll know what a hot flush is. I work with a lot of Nigerian and Ghanaian women and actually talking about the psychological symptoms such as low mood or depression is such a taboo that they won't talk about it, but they'll talk about headaches. They'll talk about shoulder pains. They'll talk about back aches or back of the legs, that sort of pain. They won't necessarily talk about the mental health side of it because that's such a taboo and a stigma. And that is in other cultures as well. We also find that women from, say, Black and Asian communities don't talk about their vulval vaginal symptoms. So there's a whole array of genitourinary syndrome or the menopause. So that's when you get dryness, soreness or pelvic floor issues. You might get leaking when you cough or sneeze which is known as stress or urge incontinence. You might also notice that having sex is a bit more difficult or painful. If you've ever had any episiotomy scars, so cuts from birth or a traumatic birth, then you might find that those scars start to tear. So you get a lot of vulval tears or vaginal tears, which can be ever so painful. And then the biggest thing that we find in menopausal women is recurrent urinary tract infection. As estrogen decreases, it impacts the lining and the cells around the vulva, which need estrogen because I've likened estrogen to being like a, a lubricating hormone. And as that decreases, you end up finding that you're getting more infections in the urethra as well. So all of these symptoms can come as hotchpotch and you almost have to put the jigsaw pieces together for everybody to understand the symptomology. We think there's now about 44 or 45 different symptoms. That is a lot. <laughs> Okay, so what I'm hearing is women from different ethnic groups would present differently depending on the symptoms that they feel most comfortable to share. Yeah, the data has backed this up as well. So if you look at the SWAN study, which is the only study that's done on ethnic minority women, they looked at black and South Asian women, but they looked at American black women as well. And they found that within that data, it depended on what the women felt was significant enough to offer to the doctor in the first place. And if the doctor knew about menopause, then obviously they would ask about those symptoms. But if they didn't, then it's usually that a misdiagnosis is made in black and Asian women and we find that time and time again we have the lowest uptake of say treatment plans such as hormone replacement therapy within black women and south asian women as well and the swan study also was very significant that it showed that if picked up at the right time then actually black and asian women go through the transition about three to five years earlier than their white counterpart so when you get a, a black woman that goes to the doctor and says i'm getting irritability, arthralgia, all over head to toe pain, headaches, I can't sleep, sex is difficult with my husband, I've got lots of libido, I mean, whether they feel comfortable enough to say that in the first place, then actually, they might find that they get a misdiagnosis of may say a mental health diagnosis and not mm. offered HRT. Because mm. also, hot flushes, like I say, naturally, we know within our population, 10% of women don't get hot flushes. I mean, I think it's far more than that. But also not all symptoms are offered up if you don't know the whole list of the symptoms because it is an all over estrogen deficiency condition. And then lastly, 
up until I would say the pandemic, it feels like the conversation and the study and the research in Black and Asian women has just never been opened up before. When I talk about menopause, I often firstly get laughed at quite a lot. I get a lot of women who will say to me, well, why are you bothering them with that? And I've specifically, because I work with a lot of South Asian women, when I said to them, I think the symptoms that you're describing is perimenopause, then they would laugh and say, oh, no, 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 Dr. Nagat, white women get menopause. And that's when it struck me that actually, when you are gaslit medically out of, say, a diagnosis, or you are never seen within those conversations, or you'll never see yourself in that data, so the representation of that data for minorities is not there. So if you can't see it, you can't be it. And you genuinely think, that that condition doesn't impact you. Whereas we know time and time again, the long-term health implications of estrogen deficiency impacts Black and Asian women more. What women want to know. It's, it's funny you say that because the past podcast episodes and all of the healthcare professionals that I've had that represent different specialties, they all highlight the same thing, which is that if you don't see the representation, if people talk about common health issues in women and the advertising, the research, what you see on social, on TV, is not representative of your culture or your community or your ethnicity, you will obviously shy away from thinking, hey, this is what is happening to me and things are picked up late you don't get the treatment that you need and everything just boils down to education awareness the more we talk about it the more we make this sort of studies very diverse and inclusive the more women will be given the help that they need early enough so you touched on treatment you touched on the hormone replacement therapy so let's just go into treatment and management what are the current treatment options that are available for managing menopause symptoms and is it different depending on the age of onset or the cause of the onset? Before I go to that, because that's such a, a good and a, and a huge question to answer, I wanted to just go back to the research with ethnic minority communities. So we need to look at women's health as a general, because if you look at it, global studies have shown only 1% of the financial sector will ever invest in women anyway. So looking at periods, looking at endometriosis, adenomyosis, looking at fibroids, which we know 80% of black women are affected by fibroids, then looking at menopause as well. And then on top of that, the representation within medical books. So you and I are doctors and we know the lack of representation of women who look like us within those medical books. So we go out as doctors, not even understanding the women from our culture and our community, but yet we are expected to use white skin as the default and then say, oh yeah, but this is what it probably looks like. So for, for example, vulval lichen sclerosis on black skin looks very different to vulval lichen sclerosis on white skin naturally. And then finally, you've got to look at big farmers as well. So the investment has always been that unfortunately, this is historic from many, many, many years where institutionalized racism plays a huge role where actually they are happy to make sure that treatments, etc., are put out for, say, the white Caucasian market when actually the global majority are ethnic minority communities and yet they are happy for the money in the sector to be invested in the global minority, which is a white Caucasian population. And so that institutionalized racism means that the opportunity to take part in research isn't always offered up to ethnic minority communities. And then finally,
finally, there's a lot of mistrust with ethnic minority communities. We have been let down so badly by research and data. Meningitis, we, uh, HIV, globally, these stories in our communities stick. And so therefore, we don't want to offer ourselves up to global pharma, which means that when it comes to treatments for menopause, currently, we're looking at, say, the first line, which is according to NICE, is hormone replacement therapy. That's literally replacement of the hormones of estrogen and progesterone. And yet all the data of how it's given to you, when it's given to you, is all still based on Caucasian skin, even to the absorption of the newer types of HRTs, which is body identical. So I'll give you an example. Currently, we've got to be really careful about when we counsel a woman. So risks versus benefits is always important. And the majority of the time, the benefits of taking estrogen back, so giving your body the hormone that it needs, is always going to be far more beneficial, say, than offering up a woman antidepressants. But in the UK, the current statistics and the data showed that only 14% of the population of women who are in the perimenopausal or menopausal phase actually get offered hormone replacement therapy. Far less, it's something like 2 or 3% within the marginalized ethnic minority communities. So that just shows that we have so much work to do. But the fear mongering around hormone replacement therapy is huge. Breast cancer, womb cancer. So your question was, is that when should we start hormone replacement therapy? At what age? I don't use age as a barometer. I use symptoms. So if a woman is coming and the symptoms are debilitating or they're affecting her life, then I would give her systemic, so something that goes throughout her whole body. Then localized topical vaginal estrogen that works in and around her vulva and her vagina is different because that is literally local. And that I start even in women who are breastfeeding. Because remember, when you're breastfeeding, your estrogen drops, your prolactin goes up so that you can breastfeed. And that can give symptoms of topical vaginal atrophy, which so many people don't realize because I think of vaginal atrophy as happening in 70, 80 year olds. In fact, breastfeeding women get it. So if you're getting a recurrent itch and it doesn't go away and you've been checked and it's not thrush, then please, please give that breastfeeding woman her estrogen back and that will make her a lot more comfortable. Something like Vagifen, 10 micrograms twice weekly while she's breastfeeding. It's localized. The data shows it doesn't get absorbed in her breast milk, so it doesn't affect the baby at all. And likewise, breast cancer patients or those who have a family history of breast cancer, they are safe to take topical vaginal estrogen. So there's different types of hormone replacement therapies, systemic and localized. But there are a whole group of people who choose not to have hormone replacement therapy, and that's absolutely fine. There's loads of herbal things. So we have to be careful with herbal things because they do have their side effects. What I did notice even when I was practicing is this very clear distinction between pharmacological therapy that a doctor will most likely prescribe versus the herbal and natural remedies. Is it now common practice that your average medic would say, hey, I would give you these options that are not pharmacological, but are herbal. Is that being done? Is that something that you do? The data shows, unfortunately, giving a holistic view for a mm -hmm. woman is not being done when it comes to the menopause. And the data yeah. consistently shows this. We are very much led by NICE guidance, but NICE guidance, when it comes to the menopause, if you look at the 2019 updated guidance, there is so many holistic input in there. So there's amazing evidence-based data that yoga at Acupuncture works brilliantly well for vasomotor symptoms as well. Cognitive behavioral therapy works really well as well. So if you're going to have herbal remedies, then make sure it's got the trademark of the regulated body to use those herbs that you're using. And also it's safe with the rest of your medications. So it's not that um, all natural remedies are going to be perfect. And this is my 
other argument when it comes to hormone replacement therapy. There's a lot of misconfusion because people think that hormone replacement therapy is a medication and it will make you younger. And it's this elixir that works amazingly. <laughs> Actually, the data time and time again has shown it doesn't put pause to any of your natural biological transition. Mm. It just literally replaces back the hormones. And mm. also what it's doing is that if it's given safely, so say through the skin, and now we've got these body identicals like estrogels, ear patches and sprays and eutrogestan, which is the progesterone. In fact, they are so similar to your body's own composition that they're safe to have. So mm. to me, even that feels natural and I think yeah. the whole concept around what is natural needs to be unpicked because yeah. even natural things are yeah. unhealthy. I mean are there any other lifestyle changes that a woman can consider around the perimenopausal period? I'll tell you really quickly because I'm going to be 40 soon. I'll be 40 in February and so I, I, <laughs> I, I actually by the way I'm reading a book that shows that the most successful people actually hit success after the age of 40 because we have so much life experience right can i but, come to your 40th birthday party by the way yes but what the data shows again is that actually in preparation for your 40s and your 50s it should actually start in your 20s because your body is going to be with you forever so if you want to be fitter stronger healthier in your 40s so that's you know generally when we start perimenopause the work and the regimen and the consistency and your lifestyle changes actually have to start in your 20s but when we're in our 20s we think we're bomb proof i mean there's so much going on in your 20s that you thinking about your 40s is just the least of your worries like there is adulting to worry about but the consistency of say doing weight bearing exercise so looking after your bones stopping smoking reducing your alcohol intake maintaining your weight so not being skinny because i hate that but being happy in your body and maintenance of your weight you know as it will fluctuate if you choose to have children because i know not everybody chooses to have children and then also life Lifestyle factors will come in the way as well in regards to your work-life balance. But if you have a good consistency, and I think we need to talk about boundaries here as well, because your preparation for your 40s means that you've got to start setting in those boundaries in your 20s and 30s. But you're absolutely right. They're so hard to do. And so I say to my patients that it's never too late to look at your exercise regime. It's never too late to look at your diet or your work-life balance, interpersonal relationships, because actually, you know, the number one thing that will give you a longer life so longevity of life so we're talking about living longer isn't actually exercise or drinking more water it's the amount of interpersonal social relationships positive relationships that you have we always think about exercise being number one but actually if you're mentally fed and you have positive influential individuals around you not toxic individuals and cortisol level isn't consistency high and your serotonin is good level and your melatonin which is your sleep hormone means that you're getting a good night's sleep because of that positive interaction means that actually you're going to be living uh, the, the longevity of life and actually your perimenopausal symptoms and your menopausal phase will actually be a far positive one and this is why I think I love the Chinese take on say menopause because they don't see this as a negative thing at all or something to be frightened or scared of as I would say sometimes it's perceived in the western culture because youth is, is like this elixir we love young you know bright pretty little things but actually the chinese have this amazing thing where they call it the second spring they say you are done with overstretching your boundaries and when it comes to the menopausal phase of your life it's your second spring you are now finding yourself in your person and you're connecting yourself with your body so i would 
would say those are the key things to start doing for a better menopausal transition. What women want to know. For me, the topic of menopause, and I suppose how it's been approached in society, is something that I have intentionally just detached myself from. I didn't think about it in my 20s. I'm not thinking about it now in my 30s because it's just this thing. I think the average woman just believes like I will deal with this in my 50s. Like this is for when I'm older. Now I'm young. I have other things to worry about. But you know, there's a lot of truth in what you're saying that if we want to go through this second spring very proudly and very intentionally, it's the accumulation of what we start doing now. And to just understand that there shouldn't be a taboo around this conversation because there is just that feeling that, you know, you're not going to be as attractive anymore. Your sex life is going to go down the drain. You're going to be aching. You're basically an old woman. And that narrative, of course, will terrify women. So I do like this perspective and especially borrowing from the Chinese culture that would look at it as a second spring I think that's a, a good one to borrow I hear this a lot and, and this is why I think that for me as a GP who does this in my NHS practice and also as a health content creator I am in my 40s soon and I've actually started thinking about perimenopause not because I was doing it in my clinics but actually when I was about 35 and it occurred to me that this is coming and I'm from a minority community so it's actually going to come a bit earlier than my white counterpart and I think that the whole concept of the fact that your sex life goes down the drain now I want to turn that on its head completely because, again, a study was done in a survey in Menopause magazine showed that in the perimenopausal phase, so between the age of about 40 to about 52, women actually hit their sexual peak. And no one tells <laughs> love it. So women actually are now not worried about falling pregnant. You can still fall pregnant, but they haven't got that concern anymore. Children are a little bit grown up as well. Yeah. So they're on the night feeds and the breast feeds, unless they're planning for another baby. And also because your eggs are decreasing, and this sounds really mean, but I do feel that your body just goes last chance saloon, last chance saloon. <laughs> Like and so women actually find that they are hitting their sexual peak and they have better orgasms because women now suddenly are discovering pleasure like they realize that they're not having sex for a functional role i never thought i'd talk about sex i love this listen this is a safe space for women <laughs> I never thought that I would be advocating for this so much because I'm seeing this in my clinics and women suddenly feel that the pleasure is for their own body. So I wrote an article in our newspaper, an opinion article, and this was based on the fact that the greatest number of vibrators are actually purchased by women over the age of 40. Oh my God, <laughs> so empowering. Right? Like sex toys and vibrators and dildos are purchased more in the midlife than any other time. And that's because women are discovering their body again you know their body has back to them and it's their profession before society had a judgment on how big your bum is or how wide your hips are or how great your boobs are or how flat your stomach is and whether the stretch marks are appropriate or not but suddenly a woman is going actually now my body's my own but I want to discover the peaks of pleasure I love that because talk about sex toys as a teenager right you're trying to hide it from your parents hoping nobody finds it 20s is kind of awkward 
God. And then in 30s, there is that idea of the functionality of, I'm in my baby making phase, if that's what a woman chooses to. But then, like you said, in your 40s, kids are a bit grown. You don't have the stressors of having newborns or toddlers. And you're trying to take the power back. You know, you're confident. You've had this conversation with your partner. I, I love it. I'm de- That's something I'm definitely looking forward to. <laughs> Statistically, women are, if they're in a relationship where they're not happy or they're not feeling that the pleasure aspect is a part of them, that there is now more of a drive for women to walk away from relationships. I'm not, also, I'm not saying on this podcast, walk away from a partner, but I think women are now understanding gaslighting a lot more from their partner's toxic relationships. And because they might be in their second spring looking for, say, a career path that they would have changed that they probably never thought about before, whether circumstances has come about. And actually in the pandemic, I used to work in a, a sexual health centre. We saw that the rate of STDs increased in women over the age of 60 because then they were really in their postmenopausal phase. But women were choosing multiple partners, different partners and partners that they probably had never thought about and using social media and apps to access different relationships. And I just read that and I thought, okay, first always have safe sex, you know, use condoms and barrier methods and make sure that you're getting yourself checked. But secondly, isn't that amazing that women are being liberated? Like we have this thing that women should only have sex up until their 20s and then they're surplus to excess. And then afterwards, you know, it's for baby making and then that's it. But actually the desire and sexuality is a huge part of being a woman. Menopause doesn't mean that that's the narrative. However, we are sold that narrative consistently. Oh God, the menopause is coming. Don't talk about it. Don't let people know that you're getting older. Don't let them know that actually you're this person that's aching. And yes, there are psychological and physical symptoms that come around with as the menopausal phase and the transition. And some women are left with hot flushes for a really long time. I think this is why I'm one, one of those sort of individuals that's really trying to drive the education around hormone replacement therapy. Let's just give women back their hormones so they can have great sex. I keep thinking of this business idea. You know how we have like baby showers and we make like a, a loads of gifts for the mum and the baby? Menopausal showers? Yeah, like a gift basket for our friends where we put lubes, lots and lots of lube, vagina moisturizer. Okay, you had this business idea on this podcast first. Bring me in. I want to be a co-founder. And like, we should get like an Etsy shop and then give it to our friends in their 40s and be like, you know, in 10 years time, your vagina will thank you that you started using vaginal estrogen. I think that's a great business idea. And I think that that's going to be the trend that we see soon. Because for example, there is now the rise in divorce parties. Like this is something that women were not embracing. Because if you came from a broken home, there's a shame and there's stigma around that. Because women in most societies, especially the one that I come from, will get the shorter end of the stick in every divorce. But now that women are having the confidence and feeling empowered to work away from toxic relationships, I'm seeing more and more on social media that people are having divorce parties separation parties so of course the more we embrace things that empower us the more likely we are to celebrate it so I have no doubt that the trend we're gonna see in the next few years is the perimenopausal parties I love it I love it because I think that there's this real push and pull between the sexes and I almost think that you know Margaret Atwood said it really really cleverly she said that men are scared that women will laugh at them women are scared that men will kill them and that sticks with me quite a lot because 
I think that there is this sort of battle between the sexes and we still have it. We have gender pay gap. We still have maternal roles are still laden on women as well. Just the cost of being a woman, a woman will spend on average £400 more than say a man on say hair products, beauty regimes. And I think that there is this still inclination that women need to be in a particular way. But suddenly I do feel we're at this precipice now where because women are calling out shit and individuals like Margaret Atwood are writing powerful quotes like this means that even men are sitting up and listening. Now I'm a mother to three boys and I don't want my boys to think, oh my God, mum hates all men. I think that suddenly this is a real space and podcasts like this are a safe space for men to listen into. You cannot have a conversation about women's health anymore without men being in the room. What women want to know. talk a little bit more about the stigma and taboos because we've kind of touched on it at several points during this conversation. Why do you think there is that stigma surrounding the topic of menopause and how can we break down these barriers? I always see it as a threefold conversation. One is, is the stigma from within, so within our own bodies. We're never taught about our bodies. I don't know about you, but I never learned about menopause at school. I never learned at a medical school I was expected to pick it up as I went through my education and I had a really lovely trainer Dr Viv Carter who was very much clued up on menopause and so she taught me and then I went through the whole sort of debacle of menopause and hormone replacement therapy causes breast cancer the million women study which has been debunked time and time again but I was actively taking women off hormone replacement therapy and they've come back on their knees or their relationship has broke down or their career has completely spattered up the wall and they would come back and say, Dr. Nagat, I just cannot function anymore. But also I started realizing it was the lack of hormone deficiency, which led to common longer term conditions. So we know that lack of estrogen or estrogen deficiency is linked with osteoporosis, your brain health, your bone health, your heart health, your gut health, almost everything is affected. And women are more likely to get autoimmune conditions much more in the postmenopausal phase. So for me, I think it's the first thing is, is the taboo is women just don't know about their bodies. And that is number one. Secondly, I think society's view as well. It's much easier to not talk about sex. It's much easier to not talk about about dry vaginas because in my culture especially when faith is a huge part of it so I'm a Muslim woman I grew up in a mosque but to put something under the carpet if it's under the carpet it means it saves society's blushes if you are uh, garingly open about something well that's bisharam which is basically you have no shame and you are talking about this the, the funny thing is it's still there it's brushed under the carpet but it's still there the more you push it under the carpet you end up getting a mountain the third fold is is research when women are medically gaslit and also they are medically excluded from so much mainstream like research that we use to help women so for example we still actually don't know what a normal period is we still don't know fully how much a woman should lose in her period even though a hundred percent of women born will have a period and so I think that things like that mean that then we see women as smaller men so the heart attack signs and symptoms are first seen on men and go oh yeah but women are very similar not understanding uh women have like biologically hormonal cycles and their estrogen and progesterone has a completely different impact on their cardiovascular system so that's my real reason why i think that so much of it is still taboo i think that's a nice bridge to advocacy and education so what are the key messages that you advocate for in terms of women's health and, and menopause the Jake in me was going, lube, lube, lube. 
Like that's what I advocate for. I mean, you you've shared how important it is for women to be educated about their bodies and about menopause, not just when you get there, but so that you're aware of how to prepare for that phase. But again, what are the resources that you recommend for women that are seeking more information? What's the key messages in addition to lube? <laughs> I do feel like going into 2024 and beyond is that we will have huge more resources. So firstly, the NHS website is an amazing site now for mm. lots of advocacy and information and it's evidence-based and it's evidence-checked. I would say to anybody who wants to know more about menopause is please read the NICE guidance because you will then understand exactly what the data is behind what is available on the NHS and how great it is going to be. And then the other thing is my book. <laughs> Yay! I have my one here. It's it's got my women in there and I talk a lot about menopause and everything that I would say to my patients in my clinical room is in this book. So this is verified, evidence-based. I've got lovely colleagues such as yourself who've all looked at this, who've been very kind about it. I'm going to leave a link for people to be able to get their hands on your book. Thank you for actually putting that information out there. And I suppose the last thing in this conversation would be how can healthcare providers support women from diverse backgrounds during menopause? Again, it, it goes back to the awareness, right? If you're aware that it shows up differently in different ethnic communities, then you know how to better offer help. I've been working in this a lot in the last sort of five years, looking at ethnic minority communities. Definitely, we need to get better research and also understanding how the menopausal picture presents itself. But the communities have also found ways of coping themselves. So we know that faith, for those that are from ethnic minority communities, faith is a huge part, whether that's Christianity, being Muslim or Jewish communities. We also know that Sikh, Jainism, Buddhists, they all have ways of coping. So they find that faith really helps. And I find that that is a hindrance in some way, because if you just pray hard enough, then your aches and pains and your psychological symptoms and your hot flushes will get better. But also, if, if you are still suffering from those symptoms, then maybe you're not a good Muslim or a good Christian. And I see that a lot in conversations when it comes to those from ethnic minority backgrounds who, for whom faith is a huge part, which means that I worry about ethnic minority community women's denying themselves treatment. And again, that's represented in the data that only two to three percent of ethnic minority women will take up the use of hormone replacement therapy or stick with it or start it and then stop. And compliance is a huge issue because there's a lack of understanding. Now there's loads of work that's happening. So I make content in different languages, in Punjabi and Urdu, to break down the cultural barriers, to have these open conversations. And now I'm linked up with incredible other health content creators around the globe through that project who are also doing similar work as well. And I think that the other thing is, is that we need to look at closer to home as well in the UK, because we're very good at looking globally sometimes, but we forget about the women here and who are still managing through the NHS system. I'm going to say something which will upset quite a lot of people, but I think it has to be said if we're going to have an open and frank conversation about what women want to know on this podcast. The NHS system and the pathways is still made for a very Caucasian, able-bodied, someone who's able to speak English, who is able to navigate themselves around the NHS system. And that is so true, because if you're from a marginalised community, say you're black, you're ethnic minority, LGBTQ+, you're from the deaf community or you're visually impaired, then the navigation for you to go around the NHS is limited, 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 depending on what intersectionality you sit on. So this is why we've got the Women's Health Strategy. So the Women's Health Strategy is an all parliamentary agreement. And this is a 10 year strategy to make sure that we look after women first. But not only do we say, oh, yeah, we're listening to women, but we're actually 
doing the changes. Whenever I go to meetings, they always say, Dr. Nigat, your women don't come to this. And I'm like, my women? Like, everybody's women. But also, it's because women don't have trust from the NHS. The pandemic was a kick in the teeth for a lot of people from ethnic minority communities because they felt extremely let down. And that then transposed into women's health because women constantly feel that they're gaslit, that they're not seen, they're not heard. I mean, women were like me with hijabs. I've never, ever been in parts or conversations around sex because we're just not seen or heard. Breast cancer campaigns. How? When have you ever seen a hijabed woman in a breast cancer campaign? And we are seeing far more now black women but when it comes to secondary breast cancer disease there are still very few black women in that space so the conversation around menopause is even more or less so so what i did was was i thought one of the things that we can do in the uk and we're the first in the whole of the world is to look at the clinical pathways so they're not white centric so they're not for the able user for those that have english as a first language english is not my first language actually my first language is punjabi so for them how can we make sure that the clinical pathways are written so that clinicians at the other end who come across say a somalian woman or egyptian woman from northern africa who has had fgm is now going through menopause how do you deal with that so we should have clinical pathways for that which we don't currently by the way so what i did was we set up the health collective and on september the 20th in 2023 i mapped out all the groups that are already doing work within their communities some of them came to the royal college of obstetrics and gynecology because there are two things i think that we should always do one is is know what the communities are doing because they have trust within themselves what we did is we mapped out all those groups across the uk and then get those groups to come together and we can learn from them so the Somalian community in Newham Tower Hamlets can speak to the Somalian community in, say, Greater Manchester and say, this is how women's health information works for us. And so, you know, communities in inner Birmingham know about communities in London. If you came to me and you said, Dr. Nagat, I want to know how Ghanaian women in Manchester or Liverpool talk about menopause because I want to do research. Or Nigerian women, I will be like, yeah, I know exactly the groups of women that are already doing that work because we've mapped them and you can then start doing your research projects with them. Because so far, would you believe it, in the UK, there are so much grassroots work that's happening because women trust each other. And this is the joy of doing women's health. Women know their body so well that they look after it. And all we have to do is watch how they do it and do more of it and incorporate that into clinical pathways. So doctors in their clinical rooms aren't still using out of date, out of reference, culturally inappropriate context and pathways to help their patients. This is amazing. Well done on the Health Collective. Really, you're doing fantastic work. Well done. The report will be next year so watch out for it so this is a plea for all your listeners on this podcast actually if you do a grassroots community or you're running a grassroots community within whatever patch you're in in the uk please 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 reach out to me and get in touch because we'd love to map you will do i'll definitely leave all of your contacts in the description bar so that they know where to find you so in closing i was going to ask you one last question what excites you about the future of women's health but also specifically how we approach menopausal care I think the biggest excitement is, is the fact that clinical care pathways will change because I'm a clinician and I, I still do clinics week in, week out. And so that means that I've got something to look forward to and be a tiny, tiny, tiny cog in all of that. The other thing is that we've now become a global, I would say majority, 52% of the population are women and uh, holding women down is going to be really difficult. Yes, we've got to look at injustices across the world, whether that's 
women in Iran, Afghanistan, I mean, Gaza currently, Somalia, Sudan, and the Congo, even in America, Roe versus Wade. So there is this huge, like, battle of the sexes that's happening across the world. But I feel that there is a unity suddenly. I mean, the fact that you've got Oprah and Beyonce talking about menopause is incredible. These really hugely powerful women. I feel now, one of the biggest thing is, is that for me, it's not about taking credit for anything. So I talk about the health collective. I talk about being a content creator. I don't care if people use my content or want to take leadership on something as long as someone is doing it. It's not about the credit. It's about that we do we get to the end point that we're looking for. If I can do that as a collection with people and um, do that by building on each other's work, then more power to you. And I always say that we get somewhere quicker and faster if we work together. And finally, I feel what's making me really excited is that different intersectionalities of society globally through social media, we are working together. I love that. What a powerful end. Thank you so, so much, Dr. Arif. It's been a pleasure having you here, sharing your insights. You're a powerhouse. You are so, so inspiring. I'm really, really looking forward to following your journey. Thank you. Thank you so much. What women want to know. A big thank you to you for tuning into the show today. If you're watching on YouTube, don't forget to subscribe, turn on the notification button, but most importantly, leave your comment. What did you enjoy about the conversation today? And what other topics would you like for me to explore on the show? I love reading your comments and responding to them and your feedback not only helps me improve, but it also helps more women to find us. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, don't forget to follow along and leave us a review. And don't keep us a secret. Share what women want to know with your network, but not just the women in your lives, the men as well. And remember that you can find us on every social media platform. So don't forget to follow along. That's our show for today. Remember, your health matters and it's okay to talk about it. Until next time, I'm Dr. Adana, and this is what women want to know.